Join Ian Garvey as we uncover the hidden marketing stories that shape our world. Reveal the latest marketing tactics that will shape your future and the amazing people that grow organizations, movements, and businesses. Learn to grow your business and shape the world around you. Welcome to the Garlic Marketing Show with Ian Garlic. And yes, it's Ian, not Ian. That's marketing too. All right, welcome back to the Garlic Marketing Show. Ian Garlic here. And today we are going to talk about marketing your startup and mainly fundraising and how to create pitch, pitch decks that work. And I'm getting this from a marketer standpoint or even another startup standpoint. I'm getting it from someone who looks at tons of pitch decks and helps design it. Leslie Cohen, thank you so much for being on the Garlic Marketing Show. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about what works and what doesn't, um, everything in between. But first, I just want to get a little bit back into your background and learn a little bit more about your law firm. So how did you get into law? <laughs> how did I get into law? I was, I was born and, and raised as you're going to law school. Um, my, for better or worse, right? And my, my, my parents' thing was you have to have a degree that's going to always allow you to put food on the table and never be depend on a man. And so, um, you know, it was like lawyer, doctor, accountant, and I don't like, you know, blood. So that was out and numbers aren't my thing. So that was out. Um, and so, yeah, just, just always told that's what I was going to be. And so how did you progress into the current type, you know, working with startups, venture backed, you know, PE, that kind of thing. How did you end up there? So I, I actually, it's interesting. I, I went to law school to be a diplomat. Um, went to law school at NYU thinking I was, I was really into international studies. The Berlin Wall fell my senior year of college. I thought that was just the coolest experience and um, had been to Russia and really into the, the whole diplomacy thing. Um, worked for the UN my first summer uh, during law school and hated it everything was very slow. So to me, like, I'm a very type A, like, let's get it done. And it didn't happen like that in the, in the diplomacy world. So I ended up taking a securities law class, third year of law school, which basically means companies that are raising money, it's the laws all governing raising money and started off in big, you know, that just really was interesting to me. So I started off in big law. I was on wall street for the first seven years of practice doing IPOs, M&A transactions for Fortune 500 companies, and then um, grew up in Chicago, moved back here and spent 13 years at a large firm here doing sort of the same sort of thing, but for micro cap publicly traded companies and then private, larger privately held companies. Then about 10 years ago, one of my partners walked in, said leaving to start his own firm felt like the rates were just going up and up and up. And, you know, we both liked working with smaller businesses. And so that was really the first time I was raising my boys. It was really the first time that I had to go out there and find my own book of business. And through a bunch of networking and, and advi advice from smarter people than I am or sager people than I am, I learned that kind of what made me unique in the market was I had this securities law expertise. And that really doesn't exist in the small firm level. Um, and so I kind of drew on that and started, well, the first, the first client, someone referred to me, a client that was raising money, a startup. And I would, I had, I didn't know the market. I knew the laws. Laws are the same, whether you're raising a hundred million or a hundred thousand. So needed to learn the market and started with this client. And, you know, he would ask me a question and I would say, you know what, I've got to hop on another call. Let me get back to you. 
And I basically learned, I would Google and try to figure out, you know, and I basically learned on him. We're still close to this day, so it's all good. And then, you know, I just really liked it. So I started speaking and mentoring at all the different incubators and accelerators and picked up a startup practice. Love it. And, you know, I'm just kind of doing the math in my head of when you went to school. And so you were in New York at pretty much the revolution in securities law. I mean, yeah. in IPOs, because I was I was working for a hedge fund at the, you know, my first job out of college at that time. So I know what was going on. Man, you've got to have some stories. What was that like? It was crazy. I mean, we worked nine to nine, six days a week, sometimes seven. Um, yeah. But it was super cool. I mean, there was uh, there was always like a town car waiting outside and, you know, hours and hours spent at the printer. And, you know, back in the in those days, there were no, um, there, there was no internet. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm aging myself in a big way, but, um, you know, we had, we had to fly to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission to file documents. So, and you had to carry them on and you had to file like 13 copies of this gigantic prospectus, you know? And so you'd be hopping on a plane at crazy hours, flying into Washington, DC, staying at the presidential suite at the Willard, and then being up at like the crack of dawn and with a wagon full of documents that you'd hand file with the SEC. I mean, it was nuts. Wow. <laughs> and you saw the the start of the internet, right? I mean, you saw, I mean, what? tell me about this stuff excites me. Sorry. I'm like kind of a, an internet history buff because I, I grew up on it. Uh, what, I mean, what was that like? I mean, obviously it was incremental, right? So it yeah. wasn't like all of a sudden it was there, but yeah, I mean, there was no, there was no email my whole first 10 years of practice, maybe more. And so everything was on like you, you on, like on carbon paper, even in the very beginning. But like one of the biggest differences in the legal world was legal research was done in books. You went to the library <laughs> hours and hours and hours. And so like being able to just Google something, I mean, it's crazy. It's just, it's, it's made life so much better. And also it was very, you know, life was very localized. So, you know, the, the biggest difference to me now is like the communication all, all mm -hmm. for people all over the world. It's so easy. It's just night and day and everything moves so much faster now. We used to have to FedEx documents. That's another big one. We had to FedEx documents overnight and there was no electronic signature. So in a, in, in a good way, the difference was you didn't work 24 seven, right? Because you yeah. had to, you know, you, you finished your contract and you sent it out to the other side by FedEx and they had to sign it and send it back to you. And you got to go home <laughs> and not be bothered. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to give me names, but what types of, you know, as you're doing this, what, when did you make the move out of the big securities, big IPOs into the smaller stuff? You know, roughly what time format? Because I mean, obviously that, you know, that 98 to 2005 was a, a game changing time. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That was about 10 years ago. So. Oh, wow. So you were, you were still in it when stuff like you saw the big boom and then the bust and then the boom again. Huh? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and what were you thinking? I mean, you know, as you're seeing these companies go on and like, cause I, you know, I, what always comes to mind for me was kind of like the jumping, you know, jump the shark moments. And like when pets.com had like a $5 billion valuation, what was it like at that point? I mean, what was going on in that world in the in the background? Because I know the the business side of it. I don't know the legals and security side of it. I mean, honestly, we just all thought it was a joke. 
I mean, we were excited for our clients, but we just, we just could not believe the shift with the, the crazy valuations and that people were clamoring for shares in these companies that were, you know, barely had any revenue. I mean, it, it, it was, it, the valuations were off the charts and, you know, we all just kind of, we all just kind of laughed. Oh my God. I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's what it was, right. And, and like, I feel like with any bubble, there's always some truth in the bubble and, you know, some of it played out. And, you know, when you're now looking at that and that history of it, what are some of the most valuable lessons you learned that you bring to your clients today? You know, seeing that boom and bust and boom and bust. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of clients, not so much anymore, but, but I would say like five to 10 years ago, a lot of startups would come to me and say, hi, I'm going to be the next Facebook. And so will you represent (laughs) me? And I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> it's just not that simple. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, uh, you know, my son, when he was like eight and went to camp and loved playing basketball, coming home and telling me he was going to be Michael Jordan someday. I mean, it's just, it's just not like that. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I think that that's a big change is that now people are understand that the, the road that it takes and that it's not so simple. I think, but I think that realization has only come in the last five years. I mean, it was really mm-hmm. just, I have this great idea and it involves tech and I'm going public. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that's been like a major shift that I've seen and a, and a good lesson for me when I talk to clients of like, it's a long road, it's a long haul. And, and the other thing that I've learned more so like through the, through the 10 years of working with startups is there's this concept that always interested me from the beginning of starting to work with startups, which is no one seems to be in it to start this business and run the business and, and grow the business and turn it into, you know, like a, like a family legacy passed on to their, their children or, you know, make a difference in the world. It's all about raising more rounds of capital so you can sell or go public. And I think that's a really interesting shift in the business world in general, because that just wasn't even with the big companies. I mean, if you, you know, I did work for IBM, Xerox, like it it just, it it wasn't like grow something and get rid of it. I think that's such a big, a big change. And it's, and it's not a simple route to go. And so I've definitely seen a shift. One of the shifts I've seen lately is um, clients used to come in and right away, it was like, you know, we want to raise our first round and then we're going to, can you introduce us to VCs? And you know, VCs, it's very few and far between that they actually do deals. And I've seen some ugly stuff happen because the truth is they have, not that they're, you know, bad people. I mean, they're people, but they have, they raise funds and they have a fiduciary duty to make money. And Mm -hmm. so they're not investing in your company because they love you. They're investing in your company to make a return. And, and that's a tough thing because sometimes, you know, you don't hit your numbers and you lose control of your baby. Your company's your baby. And someone, you know, is, and it all starts out so like lovey-dovey and then doesn't, it doesn't typically end up that way. So I I really have seen a a big shift to, I'm interested in like a couple of strategic investors, you know, or maybe some venture funding from, so I have like a, a veterinary telehealth company I represent that's a startup. They got funding from one of the big pet companies um, from their venture arm. That's the more strategic in it for the ride together provides resources outside of just here's some money. Now you better go make a lot more money out of it. That's super smart. And you know, it's funny because it immediately makes me think of Shark Tank, 
right? And I'm not a huge, it's fun to watch. I think it's bad for most, most entrepreneurship because it's like shifts the idea of what's good for entrepreneurs. But that is a good point from it. It is better to have that strategic partner than necessarily the money, isn't it? I believe so fervently. After everything I've seen, there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, because I mean, I I remember even like just watching the WeWork documentary. I don't know if you've seen that yet. (laughs) I haven't, but I've heard all about it. It's I mean, it's crazy. But I remember those stories because I remember those days of 98, 99, 2000, once again, dating myself. But, you know, money flying everywhere and, and the money just being burned. And like, literally, I mean, I think at some points people were actually burning money. Uh, but, and it, it doesn't make you, it, it, it's not running a business properly. And I think it's bad for business, but also bad for people's souls. But that's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, but, you know, at what point, you know, given this, now that we, you see out there, at what point is the right point to be starting to think about going and talking to you, talking to someone about raising money? From the very first day, honestly. Um, I, you know, it, it, people say to me all the time, I have a really small company or I'm just starting out. Is it too small for you? Do you not want to get involved with a pure startup? And it is the smartest thing in the world to do to talk to a lawyer from the very first day. Uh, people go on legal Zoom, and I'll, I'll just give you a really simple example. So, um, typically, VCs invest only in Delaware C corps, right? So that's sort mm-hmm. of the norm is to form a Delaware C corp. If you form a Delaware C corp online and you don't know the right number of shares to authorize and the right par value to put them at, and this has happened with many of my clients, I've cleaned up so many messes. You get a franchise tax bill at the end of the year for like eighty thousand dollars. Ooh. People come to me and they're freaking out. And so we have to go back and refile that we have to amend the certificate of incorporation, change the number of authorized shares. It's a whole thing. So if you can work with a lawyer from day one, smartest thing to do. And the way I work with startup clients is here's a list of all the things you're going to want to have in place before you raise funding. We don't have to put them all in place today. I, I get that legal fees are not your top priority. So in terms of first dollars that you have. So, you know, I say like, if your co-founder is your best friend since kindergarten, you don't need an agreement with your co-founder until there's really like some value there, right? So you, you can wait a few months for that. You can wait till right after your raise, that kind of thing. If your co-founder is someone you just met in some accelerator program and you think the two of you are going to conquer the world together, you got to have an agreement in place with them because there's a really good chance you're not. Uh, <laughs> so stuff like that. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because it's like I, I've seen it time and time again. You know, I've been involved in startups. I've I've seen it, and it, you know, people expect one thing, and almost always the other thing happens. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so, thinking about you know, at what point do you actually go out and get? Should you be looking at funding? You said you don't want to wait till you raise. Like, what point should someone be looking to get funding? I mean, I think that's that's so individualized depending on the circumstances. So for instance, I, you know, if you have friends and family who can give you money, that's awesome. If you have, you know, 401k, you can borrow from, you know, that's great. Not everybody has that. Talk to someone the other day, a new funding resource, very interesting model. They give that initial 30 to $50,000 to, you know, startups that don't have that backing at all from friends and family. They take a safe, a simple agreement for future equity 
And then in addition, they have an income sharing piece so that they're betting on the founder. And, and, I, and I know we're going to talk about pitch decks and I want to get into that because that's, to me, the person behind all of this is everything. And that's who... Mm. That's who VCs, strategics, everyone, they're, they're betting on the founder, right? So this was a really interesting model to me because they're saying, you know, if you don't make it, that's okay. We're betting on you going forward being a success. So if you start your next thing, that's fine too. And what they say is past a certain dollar amount of, of income, we get a portion of your income until we've gotten our money back plus a return. I thought that was kind of cool. That is interesting. It's fascinating because I, I do want to get in the pitch decks, right? Like, because I think it's fascinating too. But from us, from my standpoint in video marketing, uh, you know, years ago we found out that the second most used page on a website is the about us page. And so often people just put a CV up there. I see that, you know, we've worked with law firms for years and they just put, you know, their CV up there. Most people go there and they're like, I have no idea what this stuff means, but they want to know you. They want to invest in you because if you're hiring any type of business, you're investing in them in some way, shape or form. And yeah. you want to know who that, cause you're investing in that person. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It, and it's amazing. So right before we get a pitch decks, what are they looking for in that founder? They're looking for tenacity. They're looking for experience. They're looking for, I mean, you know, I, I think industry experience, first of all, you know, is, is very, is very important. And again, you know, to, to that tenacity point. So, you know, just being diehard for, for your product and being able to articulate, I think that's a really big one too, sort of your, your value proposition and not being all over the place. So I, I always, I see so many founders who come to me and they're like, oh, I have this product and we could use it in this way and this way and this way and this way. You know, I'm like, you're going nowhere with like, slow down and focus on one place, implement the technology in that way or in, in that particular industry or, in, and then, and or in that, you know, in that lane, whatever it is, prove your success there and then move on to, to, to other industries or other genres or what, whatever it is. That's a, you know, it's it, once again, from a marketing standpoint, I get so many of those people coming. It's funny how much, I mean, I guess it's similar because they're looking at marketing like they look at VC, like, oh, this is going to be the solve to all my problems. And because I get so many people are like, oh, I want this to be like Amazon, right? <laughs> or <laughs> I want to design a website that's like Amazon and I want that done soon. Or I want this to be like Facebook, but better. I mean, it's slowed down a little and I don't have seen that as much, like you said, but also like that lack of focus. And it's interesting because then you talk to the people that are super, super successful and they start with one little thing, don't they? They start and solve one little problem, but they solve it so well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'll just tell you from my experience, especially in, in terms of the marketing, I, I started with, I represent companies that are raising money. And now I do a ton of M&A, but that was an easy way to remember that's who I am. That's what I do. And then when you become a trusted advisor in someone's life, all of a sudden they're like, Hey, you know, I'm buying a company. Do you, do you do that? Yeah. I've been doing that for 30 years of my career. Um, but if you say too many different things, nobody can remember what you do. So mm -hmm. that that's been really helpful. That is so helpful. It, it is so helpful. So we've got a good founder. We've got a good idea. We're going to go raise money. We've decided it's time. I need a pitch deck, don't I? You do. <laughs> and what, you know, tell, let's, you know what, let's start with the worst things in a pitch deck that you've seen. Because I'm sure you've seen some funny stuff. 
<laughs> I have seen some funny stuff. I, I want to preface this with the, the next part of the discussion with the fact that um, I run Shark Tank events. So, you know, just to give you a little color on how I see all these pitch decks. So um, I'm on the board of an organization called the Small Business Advocacy Council in okay. Illinois, which advocates for, for um, legislation that's good for small businesses um, in, in the state of Illinois on the federal, state, and local level. And so we run these Shark Tank events to help raise funds for small businesses, entrepreneurs, startups. And so as a result, yeah, I see, I mean, the, the whole gamut. <clears throat> I see the whole gamut. Um, what are some awful things I've seen? Too long. That, you know, that's one. Like a 50-page pitch deck. You know, I'm like, no, we're lost on page three. Too detail oriented to, you know, just, just giving it's it, it just people's attention span. Isn't that long. You mm -hmm. will, if you have a good pitch deck and an investor's interested, trust me, they will ask you all those questions and dig in. But as a first it's, it's an overview. It's not a, you know, digging in typos. That's bad. You know, it's, it's like your resume, right? That's pretty mm -hmm. much what it is. Yep. And if you have 50 pages, it's much easier to have typos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, awesome. So what goes into a great, what, what, what draws your attention for a pitch deck? So to me, I'm looking for two things. And I think it's me and, and all the VCs that I've worked with in the past, and I've seen what's gotten funded and what, what hasn't, and what, what's even drawn interest. First thing is that, you know, what makes you different? Why, why this instead of, you know, and it's okay if you're in a competitive field, but what is it that makes your, your product, your service that you're offering different than, than the others and better? that should just be right up front apparent. And then second thing is back to that, you know, betting on the founders is management. And I, I find very often that's left till the end mm. of the pitch deck. And, and I like to see it earlier on because I like to see, you know, hey, this person had, you know, industry experience and really knows what they're doing and saw that there was an issue with something and left this cushy, comfy job to do something crazy because they saw a need, they saw a market. And, you know, I like to see that they're educated. I like to see that they have a team behind them that, you know, even if they can't afford to hire people that they offered equity, you know, give 1% to some advisors who are really top notch. Like if your resume isn't perfect, bring on people who are really good. Love it. I mean, that's, that's great advice. That is fantastic advice. And, um, you know, because I'm sure everyone starts with product, don't they? Yeah. And, and that, and what do you, you know, I've heard about this, like addressable market. When someone goes, oh, this is the possible market. How do you feel about those, those types of stats? I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's pretty meaningless. You know, the, let's go back to my veterinary, you know, if, if, if his pitch deck said, you know, there are, a hundred million dogs in the United States, like that's just meaningless, you yeah. know? So kind of honing in much more so on the particular market that you're addressing is much more helpful. And that can be, you know, a, that can be a very small market. It can be a very small segment of a large market and still be a huge potential hit. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And if you get, I mean, if you get foothold in one market, I hate to come back to like the stuff like Facebook, but it's a perfect example. They got a foothold in Harvard. They got a foothold in a few colleges. They got a foothold in more colleges well before they ever went anywhere near going public. And I think that's absolutely critical. I mean, any other nuanced stuff that you should or shouldn't do 
when creating pitch deck? I mean, what's the optimal length? I think eight pages is plenty. You know, when it's, when it's a difficult, I'll tell you another one, when it's a difficult to understand concept, I think graphics help a lot. Otherwise, sometimes they can even take away when you have too much of the graphics. But I like when there's sort of a flow chart, a, you know, things that really make it, make it easy to understand. I see a lot of pitch decks where I'm like, okay, I just read 15 pages. I do not understand what this company does. So I think that's, I think that's really important as cliche as it is. I like the page with the competitors and to see what differentiates you. And, you know, usually, obviously there's going to be like all these different categories and all your competitors have like three of the things and your product has all seven. Um, but that that's important to see because that's again that goes back to like what makes you unique in the marketplace. Love it, and I mean it's simple, simple stuff. Is there ever such thing as truly a completely unique idea with no competitors, and is that an advantage? No, I, I, I not that I've seen honestly. I mean, well, I should I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. I had I had a really um, interesting one the other day. And, and it was, it was, it was very compelling because it's completely unique. It's a, a product that keeps scorpions from getting into people's homes. And I mean, it really grabbed my attention there to me. There was like a, you know, there's not, there's no competitors. There's nothing on the market. It's a, it's a, it's a plastic shield that goes around, fits around the bottom of your house. And it's clear. You can't see it. The scorpions can't. And apparently when they say pest control in the um, Southwest, it's scorpions. I don't think in Chicago, I think of pest control as, you know, mice, whatever. And so, so I, I, you know, that was really, really unique product with a very specific market. And these guys started installing it just because their friends wanted it. And then all of a sudden they're getting pest control companies calling them like we, you know, we want, so there's a, a, you know, very targeted market, very unique product, very experienced founders. So yeah, I like it when there's really no competitors. Awesome. Well, that's good to know. But in general, I, cause I, I this is another thing I, I hear all the time is like, oh, I want you to sign this NDA and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't think most of the time you really don't have something to sign an NDA about, like, unless you have some massive piece of technology, do you? Yeah. That's a big debate in my world. It's a big debate. VCs don't sign them. I mean, period. Like it's yeah. very rare, but I have to say from like, I'm a big advocate of my clients and from on my client's behalf, they really feel like they do have something to protect. And that's so, so I, I guess what I tell them is that's another reason to keep the pitch deck broad because, gotcha. you know, if someone's going to get into the numbers with you, if they're going to really get, dig into your technology and your secret sauce, I think they should be signing an NDA, but not for, not to look at a, a pitch deck. Gotcha. And, you know, since, you know, just back to the pitch deck, how, you know, cause one thing we do in digital marketing and in general in marketing is like you test and you, and you go, okay, is this working? And you test and go, is it working? But is there way, are there ways to test a pitch deck and, you know, and how would you be adjusting it if you're going from different VC to VC? So I would say, you know, definitely do your research on the different VCs and what they like to see and the kinds of companies that they invest in. So, you know, if they're, if they're healthcare, you know, company VCs, and you have a little bit of a healthcare bend to your products, but you wouldn't typically, you know, be touting that shift the focus of your pitch deck to the healthcare piece of the market that your, your product is geared toward. Other than that, I would run it by your lawyer. I would run it by your, I run it by your friends. I mean, anyone to read it because 
you also want a lay person to look at it and, and understand. And, you know, as many different people as you can have look at it and comment on it and, and tell you what they think, the better. Awesome. Well, this has been great advice. Leslie, tell us a little bit about how to get in touch with you and who you work with and how to work with you. Sure. I love it. Um, the firm is called All Rise Legal Counsel, and we are we're based in Chicago, but our clients are all over the United States. We don't really do much international work. Our clients are, as I said, raising money. It's usually seed round and you know through Series Seed. I'm a big fan of that kind of a raise. And then um, Series A financings. And we do a lot of day-to-day contract work for companies, both startups and larger entities, um, and then, as I said, the mergers and acquisitions. So um, you can look at our profile, www.allrisellc.com. And then awesome. I'm also on LinkedIn. Awesome. Man. And, like, and like you said, anyone that's at any stage in a startup should at some point be contacting you, correct? Absolutely. Yes. That's fantastic. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun talking about it and also kind of the history of the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. And thank you all for having uh, for taking Leslie and I on your journey. This has been Iron Garlic and the Garlic Marketing Show. Video. You know it'll make you an authority. You know it will get you more leads, better leads that close faster and spend more with you. And video stories will help you be remembered and connect with those perfect clients. The problem is, where do you start? Storycruise.com is the place to go. It's like a film crew with an S. What's your strategy? Do you do it yourself? Do you hire a videographer, an agency? Do you need an editor? How do you know if they really know your business and how to make videos for business that work? The answer to all of this and more can be found at storycruise.com. It is the place to find the latest video marketing strategies, the best gear for your business, as well as videographers, editors, and agencies near you that are trained in video storytelling for business. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get special insider info for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show, including special access to several of my courses, including my case story course. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get a whole bunch of special offers just for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show. Whether you're looking for a videographer or to do it yourself, go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get started today. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook.